So my name's Anne Phillips and I'm talking today about gendering modernity. Now, modernity is, at one level, it's just a descriptive term. It's a term we apply to particular, more recent periods of history. And it allows us to think about what might be different between these later periods and earlier ones. But in practice, the term is never that innocent. The idea almost always carries with it a contrast between the traditional and the modern that represents the modern as what we aspire to and the traditional as what we seek to leave behind. So in effect, the modern is good, uh, the traditional is bad. This means one always needs to be wary about what's going on in any depiction of modernity because these depictions almost invariably perform a hierarchy. Very typically, this is a hierarchy that separates out the West from the rest. Uh, as Dipesh, uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti puts it in his, I think, wonderful book about provincializing Europe, notions of modernity provide us with a first in Europe, then elsewhere understanding of history that takes Europe and America as the model of all that is progressive and advanced and consigns the rest of the world to what he calls the imaginary waiting room of history. This is not so much history as historicism, one of the key forms, as he says, that, quote, the ideology of progress or development took from the 19th century on. Historicism is what made modernity or capitalism look not simply global, but rather as something that became global over time by originating in one place, Europe, and then spreading outside it. Now, one, uh, one response to this in post-colonial and decolonial theory has been to, to do what he calls democratise the usages of modernity. So either by extending the notion backwards to include more and more of what uh, might otherwise have been designated as pre-modern, but also discovering what people describe as alternative and vernacular modernities in, a, in an attempt, again to quote Jacobati, to rid the idea of modernity of all exclusivist and judgmental pretension. The risk here, as he argues in a, a later essay on the model of modernity, is that you potentially lose precision. The term comes to mean just a bit too much and too many different things. The other response in post-colonial theory has been the focus on the violence that accompanied so-called modernity, especially the violence visited on the colonized and enslaved and the insistence that this was no accidental accompaniment. So in Frantz Fanon's account, uh, the bullets and the bayonets are intrinsic to the very nature of colonialism, dehumanizing the colonial subjects who can then be treated as animals. Grandiose claims about equality or the rights of man, which are seen by many as key aspects of this moment, modernity, sat side by side with a stark refusal to admit the humanity of other men. So Fanon writes, quote, of this Europe, where they have never, never done talking of man, man with a capital N, yet murder men everywhere they find them, at the corner of every one of their own streets, in all the corners of the globe. So this, this provides uh, a pretty devastating critique of the pretensions of modernity. Uh, you know, in this perspective, it's not just that modernity gets patented to the West or that the binaries of modern and tradition so badly misdescribe our complex and globalised world, but that the good things popularly associated with modernity may have been saturated from their very beginnings 
with violence and inequality. Now, my argument in this lecture, and, and here I'm, I mean, I'm picking up in a sense from Fanon's reference to the endless European talk of the rights of man. Uh, my argument is that gender has played a persistent and troubling role in these versions of what is modern and progressive. From at least the 18th century onwards, which is uh, a time when there was uh, a lot of movement around the globe and increased awareness of the different ways people lived in different lands. From that time onwards, European philosophers and historians have represented the status of women as a crucial marker of a society's level of civilization. Importantly, they did mostly understand this as levels of civilization, so not just differences, but notions of higher and lower. Women from what were taken to be the less civilized lands were described as living in a state of degradation, uh, as lacking moral refinement, and in one of the frequent obsessions of these writers, were seen as disturbingly unrestrained in their sexuality. Kathleen Wilson has done an analysis of the role of gender in conceptions of modernity in the 18th century. And she argues that all the leading European theorists of the time thought that the status of women marked civilization and progress. So it's not especially surprising that as the pace of European colonization speeded up through the late 18th and into the 19th centuries, improving the status of women in the colonized territories became one of the justifications for colonial conquest and rule. Um, uh, for those, that is, who thought any further justification was needed than just the profits that colonialism brought. Now, um, uh, one example repeatedly given as regards British India is the banning of sati, widow burning. Now, it, it would be misleading to describe this as a practice. I mean, that makes it sound as if sati was widespread within pre-colonial India, India, where, in fact, it was uh, very much an exceptional occurrence and primarily restricted to sections of upper caste Hindu society. But still, there were enough instances of widows either choosing or, one assumes much more frequently, being coerced into immolating themselves on funeral pyres on the deaths of their husbands. Enough instances for British officials in India to seek guidance on how best to deal with these events. Now, to begin with, the British limited themselves to regulating the conditions under which widow burning could take place. So uh, no child widows under the age of 16 could be burnt. Uh, no women who were pregnant. Uh, no women who were obviously under coercion, so, I mean, rather, rather minimal restrictions. But they did ban the practice entirely from 1829 onwards, and they were supported in this by many Indian social reformers who had campaigned to end it. Now, the point about this example is not, not that sati didn't occur or that it was wrong to ban it, but just to draw attention to the role it came to play in justifications of colonial rule. As Catherine Hall puts it in a general essay on, on gender and empire, quote, the, degra the degraded Hindu woman surfaced again and again in 19th century colonial discourses. Issues of child marriage, the treatment of widows, the segregation of women and polygamy, all provided opportunities to compare the victimized status of Indian women with the freedom of British women.
Very similar claims were made in other parts of the colonized world. The notion that colonialism brought redress against the cruel and brutal treatment of women circulated widely. So in this particular framing of history, modernity was associated with colonialism, but colonialism here as a good thing and very much on the side of the women. Research by African and Asian scholars on the realities of, of the colonial period challenges that benign picture of colonial modernity. Uh, apart from the obvious point that any reduction in pre-colonial brutality towards women has to be set against the greater violence and brutality of colonialism itself. Apart from that point, the version of modernity that was pushed in the 19th century had very ambivalent consequences for women. So in Europe, this was very much the time of the doctrine of separate spheres. The idea, that is, that the two sexes were almost fundamentally different, uh, that each had its own clearly defined role, and that the place for women was the private sphere, the family, the household, while men would be the ones who ventured out into the public world of politics and work. By the late 18th century, and particularly among the middle classes who tended to see themselves as the beacons of modernity, it was becoming part of the ideals of the new way of life that women need not engage with the hustle and bustle of commerce, and certainly not with the unpleasantness of politics. Uh, so to give one illustration, uh, in 1778, uh, the British House of Commons introduced a prohibition on women attending or listening to parliamentary debates. Now, up till then, this had been rare, but it had at least been allowed. In 1832, an important reform act was passed, which gave the vote to a larger section of the male population. But the wording of the legislation made it explicit for the first time that this was to be votes for male persons who qualified under the then property requirements, not just persons. Modern society, in other words, may have prided itself on its greater respect for women. And there was a lot of talk about the crucial role women played in the household and how wonderful they were. But so far as the public world was concerned, the modernity of the 19th century closed down opportunities for women as much as it opened them up. When translated to the colonized territories, this modernity introduced newly gendered division. Now, I don't at all want to say that pre-colonial Africa was some kind of you know, matriarchal haven. Uh, in most regions, it was the older men who wielded the authority and held power over women. But women had assumed important positions of leadership in some of the ancient empires of the continent and continued to exercise significant authority well into the colonial period. Um, so, for example, uh, in those parts of West Africa that had a political structure of, of chiefs, kings, and queen mothers. The queen mother was an important figure who adjudicated on matters relating to the women or on cases of rape or marital conflict. So as the Nigerian poet Ifiyama Diume puts it, quote, most African societies had women's organizations which controlled or organized agricultural work, trade, the markets, women's culture, and its relevant ideology. However, uh, colonial policies of indirect rule tended to undermine this. They tended to reinforce the coercive powers of chiefs and male elders. 
including their powers over women and the younger men. And you get a very clear sense from the colonial period that the colonizers just could not envisage women as significant players. They simply assumed the forms of gender subordination they had become used to at home, and they built these more firmly into the structures of power. So in one comment, in this case on South Africa, uh, Mahmoud Mandani notes that, quote, the Boer and British authorities in South Africa who righteously denounced polygamy as female slavery and bride price as purchasing women had no qualms about legislating a customary code that treated women as perpetual minors subject to the patriarchal chief-dominated authority. So my point then is that the contrast between modern and traditional civilised and barbaric, has a long and gendered history. And this pattern continues into more recent politics, where much of the opposition to immigration, multiculturalism, Muslims, the other, is written on the bodies of women. In contemporary renderings of what it is to be modern, the condition is now widely understood as characterised by equality, uh, now rather belatedly including gender equality, and a supposed failure to adhere to this principle then becomes a handy weapon against people represented as other. Um, European countries now commonly make access to citizenship depend on adherence to what are said to be core European values. And the list of these typically includes such matters as respect for human rights, democracy, and toleration. They almost always also include equality of the sexes. Now, for myself, I'm very happy to see gender equality described as a core value of my society. But I'm less happy about the way this value is mobilized to mark out the supposedly backward from the modern. And I find this particularly dishonest in the context of what the history of gender equality under modernity has actually looked like. In the 19th and through much of the 20th centuries, Modernity was as much associated with an intensification of gender difference as with any incipient equality, and it is highly misleading to claim it as straightforward evidence of Western progress. Thank you.